Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, here we are again to talk about this week's Come Follow Me reading, Genesis 28 through 33 this week. Though I'm going to start by backing up to Genesis 27, because once again, we have two different narratives of the same occurrences, well, the same story. It's not the same story. That's the thing, right? It's two different stories, two different versions of the same story. How's that? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So between be 27 and 28. So 27 we get the J story of why Jacob was sent to Laban. And then in 28, we get the P story as to why Jacob was sent to Laban. And these were divided up, you know, they were separated from each other, these two versions of the same story by the curriculum, right? So one was in last week's reading, one is in this week's reading. And so I wanted to remind us of why Jacob was sent to Laban according to J in Genesis 27, which is Esau says to himself, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and this is revealed to Rebecca. And Rebecca says, run, <laughs> go, go to Laban. And so that's the story from Jay. And so then we can go into now 28 and what P says about this. Well, yeah, the other difference in the story is that there's a deception on the part of Rebecca and Jacob in getting the blessing of Isaac. Whereas in this version of the story, it sounds a little more deliberate and purposeful on the part of Isaac giving the blessing to Jacob. Yeah, that's an important difference too. So we start off here with Isaac pronouncing this charge to Jacob, and it's don't go and marry one of the Canaanite women, which is what his father had told, not specifically to Isaac, but had told his servant, you know, I don't want my son marrying a Canaanite woman. So you need to go back to my family and find him a wife. And that's just the first parallel. Yeah. I mean, one of the interesting differences here is that, you know, Abraham doesn't want his son Isaac going back to his family. He has some reservations about maybe how they might corrupt him or I don't know. He kind of sends his servant to scout it out. But when we get to the point of Isaac and Rebecca, you know, Rebecca doesn't have any reservations about sending Jacob back there, right? That's her family. And so that's where Rebecca's come from. Now they kind of know, hey, these people, we can go to them. They accept us as family. And so there's less of a concern there. So Jacob himself can go, doesn't need to send a servant, right? Yeah, that is an important difference. And at the same time, she's sending him back to her family. Abraham was sending not his son, Isaac but somebody to go get a, a wife for him back to his family. And so then we get to the next verse, and again, there's a parallel, right? It's going back to the family and looking for, for a bride for his son. Yeah, and so this time it's Rebecca saying, go to my brother and find one of his daughters, so one of your cousins, right? Yeah. 
So then Ishmael, because he hears that his father doesn't like the idea of Isaac marrying a Canaanite, he decides not to marry a Canaanite either, but he marries uh, somebody from Ishmael, which is, again, interesting because you have these two, the two sons, and then the two sons, and they're related in, in that separate way, right? Right. Well, the second generation are twins, whereas the older generation are half-brothers, right? That's another important difference. So you see these, there are similarities and there are differences. Yeah. But more but, than anything, the stories are alike. Sure. It's the retelling um, with some new themes, you know, new twists of the Abraham story, because we get this repeated promise from God, the sacrifices that happen, how he interacts with other people resolves conflicts, things like that. These are all repeated types of themes. And you still get, you know, differences in a little bit how they deal with the situations, but we definitely have this inheritance going on of this Abraham ethos. Right. And so one difference that we do see here is we get to the story of the stones for pillars. I'm playing with words. They're pillows originally and they're pillars later but you could pronounce pillows pillars right <laughs> yeah so, well that's a coincidence <laughs> in english that there's a yeah. there's a similarity there so yeah so originally pillows and later pillars and so you have this this vision that jacob has this dream uh is it a dream is he is he awake he sees this ladder maybe better translated a staircase a stairway to heaven we should play a, a 30 <laughs> second uh, clip from stairway to heaven and and so he sees the stairway to heaven that we call Jacob's ladder, and there are angels moving up and down it. And the most interesting thing to me about this, about the text that we have in front of us, is that it doesn't include all the things that I've heard about Jacob's ladder. They're not in there. It reminded me of all the things that we get from Dante and from Milton, from the Dante's Commedia and from Milton's Paradise Lost that we insert into the Bible. You know, in Genesis also, right, especially back in the beginning. And so I don't even remember what those things are. You've heard of these things too, right? Yeah, I, I know that there is a lot of commentary on this. There's a lot of meaning that has been extracted from these few verses. I think, like, just looking at the text, for our purposes, we get the statement of the Lord. And he says, he repeats the the blessing which is the blessing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is that they will be blessings to others. Okay, so he says, the way it's formulated here in, in my translation is, all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. And then the Lord says, know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Okay, so. To me, this is sort of some of the meaning that comes out of this dream that he sees of this stairway that have angels or messengers of God going up and down. And what I kind of pull from that is that God is involved in the affairs of men, of humans. And so he is ascending and descending back and forth. And he is saying, Jacob, I'm here with you, 
and I am interested in your life, and I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. So Jacob sees that there's this this communication that's happening between heaven and earth, constant communication. Remember, you know, back in ancient times, well, not even that long ago, the only way for communication to happen between two peoples would be literally for someone to physically go from one place to another. And so whereas communication, that word to us today means something really more electronic and at a distance, anciently and for most of the history of the world, communication had to be given in person. You had to have a messenger to give that communication. So it makes sense that you would have these messengers going up and down between God and man. Now, there's some there's some really curious wording here in a couple of these verses, Ben. By the way, in, in 14, I did also pick up on this idea that that the blessing, I think this is, is worth repeating, the blessing that's being given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to bless others. Mm-hmm. It's And I think this is important because I think we'll see, as we go through the reading, we'll see Jacob, in a sense, wanting to bless himself, right? He struggles, and so that, he struggles with this concept, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so we have that. And then in verse 16, we read, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And I just, it doesn't even strike me as that odd now that I reread it. But the the verb tenses there threw me off a little bit. And so I went to the NRSV and I read, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. So it's not that he is in this place now, and I knew it not then, because knew is past, but rather that he's in this place and I did not know it, is how we say, I didn't realize it, as it's present, right? As he is present, I'm not aware. And then it's interesting because he says, and he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So now we have heaven's gate too. But isn't that interesting? I mean, I I get that he's afraid, you know, you see an angel, you experience the presence of God, and it's, it's something really unexpected, right? It's something completely how should I say, other, right? Transcendent is probably the best word. But to call it then a dreadful place and to say then, because it's a dreadful place, it's the house of God. I would call that a bad translation. The NRSV says, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, the KJV does say dreadful, and what this is evoking is you know, a response of awe. So I like okay, the good. word awesome better. There. I like that too. As long as we don't read it the way we overuse the word awesome. Right? Sure. Everything's well, we've awesome. got a vernacular for that, you know. Right. Yeah. So if we read this as truly awe inspiring, then that makes more sense. Yeah. What do you make of the pillows as pillars? So there's a couple things that could be going on here. I mean, the most obvious thing here is that there's some sort of construction going on. I mean, he names the place Bethel, which that's just the house of God, right? So right. this is this is a proto-temple here because he thinks this is where God dwells. There's the staircase that's the gate that goes up and down. And so there's all of these structural symbolism going on here of a gate, of a staircase or a stairway, and now, you know, you've got a house. And so even just symbolically, the, this house is being constructed here and this is the the prototypical idea of a temple in this place being developed. You know, to Jacob, it seems to be specific to this place, right? He's talking about a geographic place. But I'm going to proof text here a little bit, where he says, 
sure the Lord is in this place and I did not know it, just like you were saying, Christopher. And kind of what I take from that is that, you know, Jacob thinks he's talking about this specific geographic place, but this can be applied to an experience that we would have with God anywhere, right? You know, God is anywhere that we are ready to recognize him as being. And so often we may look at ourselves after an experience and say, oh, God was here and I I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it before just now that God really is here with me. And so we have those moments of of realization, epiphanies, or, or even, you know, a type of theophany where we experience God and say, oh, you know, he really is here. And I, I just, I didn't see it. I didn't realize it. I didn't understand it in the moment, but now I do. Yeah. And so in terms of sacred geography, then now we're going to say, this is the place where heaven and earth meet, which we see in the right. latter. This is the gate to God, right? So this is the place. And this is the place, right? In our tradition, there's that famous line, this is the place. And so this is the axis mundi, right? This is the place where heaven and earth meet. This is the place where, of course, you would say this is the house of God. Another connection I see with the place, you know, the, the stone itself that is used for a pillow is part of that place, right? It's part of the place itself. And so it makes sense for him to then if he's going to build a pillar to use the stone from the place and to raise it up higher in a sense, right? And and we can make a comparison with the Tower of Babel here too, right? Yeah. So there there is something there because I mean the word Babel, you know, Bab El would be the gate of God or the door of God. And so Babel was that tower that was being built by man to get to God. Whereas Jacob here, he has this dream that there is this stairway to heaven, but it's something that ostensibly God constructed, that angels use. And so Jacob is is just becoming aware of the fact that he doesn't have to necessarily construct this, this stairway. It's done by God, but he erects this pillar as a sort of a monument, I guess you could say. A marker, the fact, maybe? Yeah, a marker. Um, one of the commentaries I read, and I, I'm, I'm not sure about this, I think it's a bit of a stretch. One of the commentaries I read said that this was maybe a sign of male fertility, and, and I felt like that was a bit of a stretch. But they did say that it might be uh, juxtaposed against the, the sign of female fertility, which would have been a tree in that instance. And we have seen that motif come up. So there might be something to it, but I felt like it was a bit of a stretch. Yeah, so an important thing to point out in comparing this with the Tower of Babel is that the Tower of Babel was made with bricks, and mm-hmm. this is made with stone, and there was yes. and we cut co- we covered that when we talked about the Tower of Babel. So this is done with stone. The other thing that stood out to me is, you know, in the Islamic tradition, there's the Kaaba, right, which is this. It, it's a sort of temple, right, and this is the the cube that is in the great mosque in in Mecca where where Muslims go and perform pilgrimage and Part of the pilgrimage is to walk in circles around the Kaaba Uh so many times. Is it counterclockwise? I think it's counterclockwise. And this is toward then the direction toward which Muslims pray. Originally, it was Jerusalem. And then when the Jews rejected Muhammad as a prophet, because he originally saw himself as a prophet to the Jews, the direction of prayer was changed to Mecca. Well, this this Kaaba was said to be built by Abraham. And so I see here 
a story that looks parallel. It's not Abraham, mm. but it is his grandson, right? Yeah. You know, maybe we could we could look at it in a bit of a cynical way of, of co-opting that tradition, right? And saying, oh, this this actually goes through Jacob, Israel, right? How, how do you mean, Ben, in co-opting well, the tradition? Well, by, by saying Jacob is the heir to this tradition. You know, he's the... He's the birthright. He's the heir to this. He's the one that constructed this, right? And so he's following in the footsteps of Abraham. So well, yes, right. And he's the son of Isaac, as opposed to Ishmael, and the the, yeah. the Muslim nation as comes to Ishmael from and as Ishmael. Opposed to Esau, so right. And so the last thing here in in chapter twenty eight is tithing. I say that with a question mark. What do you make of of the of well, verse twenty eight? I mean, that's literally what it is. I mean, tithing just means a, a tenth. You know, so that's literally what this is. It's definitely tithing. I mean, we have a lot of baggage with the word tithing. Yes. And so, but this is tithing in just a pure biblical sense. It does seem kind of out of nowhere, you know, yeah. that he would and, and say this. And this isn't a verse like, that's cited for, you know, when we talk about tithing. Yeah. When he says he's giving a tenth to God, what we're probably talking about here is in sacrifice. Right. It would be my guess. But it it is tied with temple. and we've. You know, tithing, even in our tradition, is very tightly tied with temples. But at least in, you know, this story, the sacrifices would happen in this place as well. You build an altar from stone, you make the sacrifice. And so that sacrifice is codified, at least in this instance, as a tenth. So every tenth animal or whatever that you would have. So So in the next story, in chapter 29, we have, again, a story that looks a lot like the story of the servant of Abraham going on behalf of Isaac yeah. to look for a wife and meeting Rebekah at the well. Here you have Jacob himself who goes, as we've pointed out, he goes himself. And, and where does he end up? At a well. And where does he meet his wife, his wife-to-be, also at a well, right? And there's the conversation that happens also with the family of the bride. We've got this well, and it has this super heavy stone over it. And they say, no, we all have to wait till everybody gathers because we all have to together move this stone and give water to our animals and then put it back. And and the idea is that the stone's really heavy and so everybody has to gather to do it. But then we have Jacob. It says, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother Laban. So Jacob does this by himself. Later when we get to the, the wrestling match, what we have here is this... Uh, mythical hero Jacob kind of has superhuman strength. This right. goes back to what we mentioned last week because Rebecca feels the two twins, you know, wrestling in her womb. And then the Lord tells her one will be stronger than the other and then the elder will serve the younger. And we said at that time that Esau was the stronger one. I, I think that's probably still correct. But here we have Jacob being touted, it, it's being shown that he has superior physical strength that he's able to move this stone by himself. That is interesting, isn't it? And later on, we'll see Esau show up with a lot of strength too, but that's because he brings 400 men with him, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And so there are different ways of thinking about strength or power, if you will. Yeah. yeah. So then we have a beautiful verse, Ben. I love this verse because Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. And so he makes an arrangement to work seven years to win her hand from her father, Laban. And we read, and Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him 
but a few days for the love he had to her. Aww. Such a beautiful verse. Is that the first, like, super romantic verse in the... I guess there's a little bit with Isaac and uh, Rebecca, but but not quite to this extent, right? <laughs> you can really feel the love here, right? So, and then in verse 26, though, it's interesting because we see, again, we have parallels, but then we have these differences. And it's interesting because Laban says, when it comes to marrying off Rachel before Leah, he says, no, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Because what happens on the other side of the story, you know, where these guys are coming from, is the second son gets the birthright. Mm, right. And right. so I That's saw, point. Yeah, I saw a contradistinction there and in, in looking at that and comparing the two stories in that way. You know, as this story between Jacob and Laban unfolds, we might do well to remember to come back to this point here that Jacob has an offense here by Laban, right? Laban deceives him. I mean, he kind of outright lies to him. He says he'll give him Rachel, and then he, he doesn't, and he kind of reasons it away, but there's deception here regardless. And because Jacob really does love Rachel, you know, he's willing to go along with this because that's how it's it's going to happen. But I see Jacob as as kind of having a grudge maybe here against Laban. It kind of fills itself out later. But as you see the character of Jacob unfold in these chapters, I, I see Jacob as one who kind of starts having a hard time forgiving. And and I see I see that come out a little bit in this. He struggles with forgiveness. And the idea of the name that he gets, Israel, is you know one who strives with God, or maybe even struggles could be a word that that fits in there. And so I think that that struggle to forgive others might be part of that striving, that struggling that Jacob is constantly having. And then we create a, a metaphor or an allegory of this in his wrestling with this man with with God, the struggle that he has. And I think a large part of that is is him struggling with how to forgive other people. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Now, Ben, I'm going to put you on the spot here, if you don't mind. In verse 27, we read, fulfill her week. Right? So Laban says, I can't marry off the younger daughter without marrying off first the, the older daughter. Yeah. And so if you, if you still want Rachel, you know, you've been married to Leah now, so fulfill her week and we'll give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years and jacob did so in verse 28 and fulfilled her week and he gave him rachel his daughter to wife also so he he does eventually marry rachel by you know fulfilling her week but what does that mean you know we talked about last time how there's not like some marriage ceremony outside of the consummation of the marriage right there's an agreement and then it's like okay you know you have her i mean in this case they do have a feast but there's not really a particular ceremony. It's just like you go in that room and the next morning, you know, you're married. And the idea here is that Leah's veiled and it's dark, no electricity. <laughs> so Jacob doesn't know that it's Leah, consummate the marriage. Next morning, hey, it's a done deal, right? This isn't something you can annul. Like the act has been done. And so yes. you are married. There's, there's nothing we can do to change that anymore. 
then what you have after that is a week of festivities. So that's what this is. It's a it's a week of celebration of the consummation of the marriage. So the idea behind this is that that is kind of a, a party for the bride, you know, and that's where she's probably going to have her dowry presented to her and, you know, other things. So. So first you have a contract, then you have a consummation, then you have the bridal shower. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's yeah. interesting. I'm glad you uh, you could answer that question because I, I meant to look into it and didn't. So now we have this strange story again that looks a lot like the story between Sarah and Hajar or Hagar, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of echoes of that here. Yeah. Yeah. So when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, the text tells us he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So there's something for Jacob to learn here, right? As long as he's only loving Rachel and he's married to Leah and he's not loving her and he's hating her, then she's going to conceive, not Rachel. And the joke's on Jacob, right? Yeah. A lot of these chapters have trickster stuff going on. You know, Jacob kind of deceives Esau and then they deceive Isaac and then Laban deceives Jacob. And now we have the Lord sort of playing a trick on Jacob. Right. So there's there's a lot of these these tricks going on that seem to have, you know, real world consequences, real life consequences to people. These aren't simple, playful tricks. But (laughs) Ben, if I can put you on the spot again, we've been reading this text, you know, skimming along the surface, maybe literally. What if we read it more literarily? I mean, I get there's no electricity, but there are oil lamps. How about voices? There are voices. So, you know, yeah. what do you think this text is they doing? They probably aren't the same height. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, et cetera. Right. Sure. So what do you think is going on here? And the same thing with Rachel being barren and, and Leah being able to bear children. This is just something that happens and it's explained away as God made it happen. So that's, that one's easy to deal with. But what do you make of this other thing? And we see the same thing back in last week's reading. Do we really think Abraham? You know, he's. It's. I, I remember comparing it to the the Little Red Riding Hood story, right? Hmm. Where there are all these evidences that things are not as they seem, and yet they really must be as they seem after all. So you you mean referencing the fact that Jacob doesn't realize it's Leah, not Rachel? Right. Just yeah. like Abraham doesn't realize that he's giving the the blessing to Isaac instead of yeah. to Esau. Yeah. In this case, is it Isaac the or Jacob? Simplest. Uh, Jacob. In this case, the simplest explanation is that they're drunk. Sure. <laughs> so this explains it. away Lot and his daughters too, right? <laughs> yeah, it does. This is a. They didn't mention it here, but this is a return of the theme. Yeah, I don't have answers any more than you do, Ben. I just wanted to raise the question. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a good one. You know, the the idea is like a, like we were saying, she's veiled. And it's dark, but you're right. At some point, there's something that, you know, may be a clue. But I think that if the senses are dulled, you know, they just had this, they just had this feast the night before or, you know, leading up to this, then the most reasonable explanation here of where he, why he truly didn't know who it was would be that, you know, they, they might be a bit inebriated. So. Maybe. I, you know, I'll, I'll just uh, invite listeners to sit with the question 
as another possibility. You, you and I were talking pre-show here, Ben, about how oftentimes, especially as Latter-day Saints, but I think this is generally speaking how it works with the Bible, most people know exactly what's going on in the Bible. Most Christians, they know exactly what's going on in the Bible. By the way, they don't even need to read the text to know exactly what's going yeah. on in the Bible. <laughs> you know, in some sense, our experience with the Old Testament was was that same experience, right? It has been explained to us. We have, we've heard Bible stories. We have Dante in there. We have Milton in there. We have stuff about Jacob's Ladder that we can't even remember, but we know it's out there, right? All of this is in the Bible, and none of it's in the Bible. And so as we read the text carefully, as we read it closely, and as we ask ourselves questions, and as a matter of fact, one of my favorite books about the, well, any book of Scripture and the Latter-day uh, Saint standard works is from James D. Faulkner. And that's, he has, a, he has one for each of the standard works. In this case, the Old Testament made harder. Now, James Faulkner is a professor of philosophy at BYU, or at least he was. If he's, I don't know if he, whether he still is. And so as philosophers, we ask questions. And we're okay if we don't have the answers. And we're okay with, with offering answers that may not be the answer or the correct answer. And we find that asking the questions and trying to answer them is a valuable exercise. We don't think we can answer all the questions, but we think it's worth trying. Mm -hmm. And so what Faulkner does in his books is he fills them with questions, not answers. So you have the Old Testament made easier, I think, is another book out there. I'd pass on that one, and I'd go with the Old Testament made harder. Made harder. Hmm. Yeah. So just all that to say, just who really knows what's going on here? <laughs> Don't you get that sense now, Ben? Or I, I used to be so sure that I knew what was going on, and now I think, I don't know what's going on here. Yeah, there's a lot of potential explanations, but yeah, ultimately, there's not enough detail to say for sure. Yeah. So going into chapter 30, again, we can compare between this story and the story of Sarah and Hagar again, right? So in verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. And so this is just like when Hagar has a son and Sarah feels mocked, right? Hmm. Very similar story. Yeah, it's multiple things wrapped up in this because Sarah says she gives Hagar to Abraham so that she can have a child, which is what happens here. But then the rivalry here isn't between the servant and the wife. It's between the two wives, right? So. We have the same sort of themes, it's just the characters are kind of shifted around a little bit. Right. And then we, we get all of these stories, these sub-stories about the sons that are born right. unto, uh, unto the wives. And they read like these sort of like folk explanations of the names. Well, they are, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and, and so the names literally mean what they say they mean. And it's very, it would be very easy for you to say, oh, well, this is that name, and then you came up with the explanation. And so a lot of times, you know, in the text, it says they named them because of XYZ. I think it's more likely that, you know, when this was being written, you look at the names and then you come up with a reason why the name came about. So the opposite was probably true. Again, the idea of etiology, right? Yeah. And so we have these names, and when you say, Ben, that they mean what it says they mean, what you mean is in the King James Bible, we say, this happened, and so they called the name this, right? Right. 
And so what other translations do is they tell you, maybe in parenthesis, that's because that's what the name means. Right? Right. And so the King James Bible isn't telling us this, but that's what's going on. Right. So this happened. Anytime you see this happen. So we named the boy this. What this means is this happened and the name are the same thing. Yes. And so we see that with all these names. And we have a, a child being born every two verses here, I think. <laughs> there's yeah, there's a lot a there's bit. a lot going and, on here. And it's all sons, except for later they do mention Dinah, but it's all sons. It seems to reason that there are daughters going on here, but in the tradition they didn't name daughter children in the scriptures very often. And so in these texts we don't get that because the genealogy wasn't recorded that way typically. So and so the fact that we don't see daughters named here doesn't mean that there weren't daughters. They're right. just not named. It's a glaring omission, especially by our cultural standards, to not have those in here. But it, it is what it is. You know, we can't say what we don't see in the text. All we can say is there's almost certainly daughters and they're not mentioned. Right. In verse 14, Ben, we have this mandrake. Hmm. And what is a mandrake? Well, uh, it's a root. Right, it's a root, but there's something more about it that you, that you told me about that I didn't know. Yeah, so this would be an ancient aphrodisiac, um, which fits in this story, right? Because we've got this rivalry between Leah and, and Rachel, and they each in turn are trying to seduce their husband away from the other one. And sometimes they do it using their maid, you know, one with their maid and the other with their maid. And then in this story here, we come to kind of a head where they've got these mandrakes and Rachel gets the mandrakes from Leah in order to go and seduce Jacob. I thought this was really curious because there's a play by Machiavelli called The Mandrake. Mm. And I read that play with my kids. I guess it was last semester. And I said, wait a minute, that's a story about a, about a cuckold. There's a, there's a seduction and a and and some trickery going on in this story. It's a great play, by the way. If you have, if you haven't read it, it's really good. Um, but I, I did do a quick Google search, and I found out that yes, somebody had written a paper, an academic paper, on biblical allusions in Machiavelli's play. Not surprisingly, and of course, being Machiavelli, he's going to have moral ideas different from those in the Bible. If we didn't mention this in the episode on the our introduction to the Bible, I don't think we did actually. I don't know that you can actually find morality in the Bible. I think we come to the Bible with our morality with us, and then we sort of reject those things that don't match up with our morality. And those things that do match up with our morality, we say, you see, there it is. I got see, it from the is. Bible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I, I don't think most of us don't think that we, maybe we want to kill our sons uh, sometimes when they don't listen to us. We feel that way, but we don't actually think that we should be able to do it. Yeah. And if I did feel that way, I would hope that you would feel I shouldn't and that you would do something to stop me. <laughs> so then it's interesting because as we have all these children being born uh, and Leah's the one having the children, then we have this verse that reminded me of Noah. Remember Noah's out there on the water those 40 days and I guess God had forgotten about him because then we get, and God remembered Noah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I still. I left the I left the cookies in the oven. <laughs> and so now we have verse twenty-two of chapter thirty, and God remembered Rachel. And of course, you know, Noah felt like God remembered him, right? 
Rachel mm-hmm. is going to feel like uh, God remembered her too in this case because now she's going to have children. And we have even Joseph, by the way, I just want to point out uh, in verse 24 that Joseph too, because that's a name that's more familiar to us. And so we don't know that that, that also has a meaning to it. And that's right there in the, in the verse, right? It's right there in the text. Yeah, it means the Lord added or he adds. The right. implication being the Lord is, is adding. So then we have that Jacob wants to go away from Laban. Okay, I, he served his seven years to marry Rachel, got Leah instead. He served seven more years, got Rachel. Now he wants to go away. He wants to go back where he came from. And remember, all the way back to you told us, Ben, that God said he would go with him there and back, right? So yeah. now it's time to go back. But Laban doesn't want him to leave because Laban has been blessed by, by Jacob. And it's interesting to me because that is the blessing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are given, that they will be a blessing to others. And so that's exactly what's happening for Laban. But then in verse 30, it looks like Jacob wants to bless himself. That's what it looks like to me, that he he acknowledges, uh, just as Laban has said that he's been blessed. I think Jacob can acknowledge that. And he says, yeah, but now I want to bless myself, right? I, what's in it for me? And so in verse 43, at the very end of the chapter, we do get that he does actually bless himself, right? He, he's going to be increased exceedingly, and he's going to have a lot of cattle and maidservants and manservants and camels and asses. And then as the story continues, to me, it's hard to disentangle who cheated whom, because we can go back, well, who started it, right? We can say, well, yeah. let's see, he was told that he could marry Rachel after he served seven years. And then he had to serve seven more years. He actually got Leah. He was tricked. But I don't know that the text is trying to make it so that it's really obvious who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And I think our focus has to be on Jacob regardless. And as you've pointed out, Jacob seems to have a hard time forgiving. And as I'm pointing out, I think that he's looking to bless himself and and not really thinking about blessing others, at least at this point in the story. And so that's what I wanted to bring out. Yeah, it's possible that Jacob finds it easy to rationalize or justify his behavior here. He does say later, you know, that that Laban changes his wages a bunch, you know, so he's always renegotiating with him what the the costs or the price are of what he wants from him. It says he changes it 10 times, but those 10 times don't come out in the text. It's a strange story here with the flocks, what's really going on. The way it's told from the start, what Jacob does is he offers to Laban, hey, I'll only take the animals that you know are marked in a certain way, striped or spotted. And those were rare colorings for an animal. And so Laban's like, yeah, that's fine, because that means you're not going to get very many. And then what Jacob does is he contrives this way to breed the animals such that more of them have this marking on them. And it's a very strange thing when we read it in the text, but if we we see this from an ancient mindset, apparently there was the idea that the coloring of the offspring of a ewe lamb was dependent on what the ewe lamb was seeing when it conceived. You know, obviously it didn't have a scientific understanding of how these things happened. And so that was their explanation. So what Jacob does is he concocts these patterns for the ewes to see while they are conceiving. And so that is supposed to be the explanation for why they bear the coloring of their offspring. 
and why Jacob's takeaway increases while Laban's decreases because Jacob is doing this. However, there's an alternate explanation that happens in the next chapter, and it just has to do with the Lord being the one that has made all of this come about. And so there's kind of two explanations. In one, it's Jacob that contrives the whole thing and all the details of it and makes it happen. And in the other one, it's really the Lord that, contrary to what Laban is trying to do, the Lord always prospers Jacob regardless. And so Jacob is sort of passive in that account in chapter 31, whereas in chapter 30, Jacob is the one that's making it happen. We weren't able to see whether there was like actually from a scholarly analysis point of view, separate authors of this here. But to me, I actually see, I see two different accounts. One, again, describing Jacob's trickery, so to speak, and the other just describing how the Lord blessed Jacob regardless of what Laban decided to do. Yeah, and there wasn't an obvious, you know, this is P, this is J that, that we could find, but that doesn't mean that there, you know, that there isn't, uh, or that there couldn't be a source of someone else noticing this before Ben. Now, Ben, it could be that, that you have discovered something new here, <laughs> uh, that you are a careful reader. I appreciate that. So you have then something interesting pops up here that it's something that shows up in 3119 that then we pick up later because it's right in the middle of the story you've been telling, Ben. And it's that Rachel steals Laban's idols. Yeah, his gods. His household his gods. gods. Right, his household gods. And so the question is, what does she want with them? What would you say to that? Well, it wasn't obvious to me at first, and I don't know that it's still necessarily obvious. There's a couple thoughts I have on it, and then there's some commentary that seems to make more sense. One of the thoughts I had on this was that this is the religion of Rachel. This is what she grew up with. And she knows she's leaving. She's never going to see her family again. And so the idea being that she would take these. Now, there is a discussion earlier where she talks about how her father has sort of squandered their inheritance. And so they're not going to really get anything. So this might be her kind of trying to take that as a family heirloom to pass down. Maybe these do have religious significance to her. She doesn't quite understand Jacob's view or religion of God yet. And so that could be going on. The The commentary, though, says something that I, I think was more interesting than my thoughts on it. And it says that these represented ancestral deities. And so, yes, these were family heirlooms, but on a much higher level. What it meant was when you possessed these, that you were ensured the leadership of the family, and it legitimized the property claims if you possessed these these idols. And so Rachel is basically claiming her inheritance as, you know, like a, her birthright, I should say, of the family. And she's taking that with her and saying, I'm claiming leadership of this family, which is quite a statement. What's interesting to me is how much your intuition and and what you found in reading commentaries match up, Ben. It's they're not actually that that different, right? You got you got a little more detail of why uh, the, you know these idols are so important and what they represent. But I think there's also something that's not in the commentary that's in your intuition that I think we can say, you know, for Rachel, she's marrying into the family 
of Abraham, who's our mm-hmm. ur monotheist, right? Or at least monolatrous, right? Mm-hmm. Because there are these other gods. And so if she's monolatrous at this point, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But even if she is, that doesn't mean that she doesn't recognize that there are other gods. She's just not going to worship them, but she has this other use for these idols. I would say she's probably not monolatrous at this point. She, she's marrying into a family where that will become her religion, but this is the religion of her father. And so it's interesting because we can see her leaving, on the one hand, leaving behind the religion of her father to go to the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ours, right? But on the other hand, she's bringing these idols with her. And again, they, they get mentioned here, and then they, they're not mentioned as we go through the rest of the story that you've told. And we have another stone pillar and stone heap coming up. But then they show up again later. And I think it's interesting. We'll come back to them as we go through the text. So we get this exchange between Jacob and Laban. And Laban is saying, why did you, why did you leave? You know, goes after them. And Jacob says here, he says, because I was afraid. And this echoes Abraham saying that Sarah is his sister because he's afraid that Pharaoh is going to kill him. Isaac saying Rebecca is his sister because he's afraid Abimelech's going to kill him, so forth. So some of the actions of these men, you know, they do come out and they explicitly say, I, I did this. I acted rashly, which, you know, the, the accusation of this other party is that they acted in an irrational way. And they say, well, I did it because I was afraid. And and this comes up actually a couple more times for Jacob. He he does seem to act out of fear more so than his predecessors, as at least in the way that it comes out in the text. And this seems to be one of you know the first explicit cases where Jacob is acting out of fear. And based on what Laban says, it was unnecessary. Laban didn't have any intention to harm him or or steal from him. Now we could you know sort of intuit that. Yeah, but, you know, Laban probably would have tried to keep his flocks and, and stuff like that. But, you know, Laban's explanation here is that he he just wanted the chance to say goodbye to his family and everything. And he didn't wish Jacob any any ill will. So, you know, but I'm not seeing the distance between what happens to the gods next and uh, that, that I thought was there in the text. As I look at it here again, it's actually in verse 35. So in verse 32, she steals Laban's gods. Oh, wait, no, sorry. That's earlier. So there is a little bit. So it's in 19. And then down in 32, Jacob doesn't know. So when Laban comes looking for the the gods that were stolen from him, and he catches up with them, Jacob doesn't know about it. And he says, go ahead and search, you know, whatever you think. You're you're not going to find anything. And it turns out he doesn't know Rachel has stolen them. And then Rachel hides them by sitting on them and claiming she's menstruating. And so she doesn't get up to greet him. And he searches everywhere but under her where, where she's, she's sitting the on trickster, them. trickster, this one, right? There's lots of yeah. trickster stuff going on. And then we have Jacob claiming that he's justified by God and stealing from Laban. That's, that's the way I'm reading it. What would you say to that? Yeah, that's kind of the beginning of this chapter as well. You know, it talks about what Jacob does in order to to breed these animals so that he gets the advantage. And then we get in the beginning of chapter 31, all of this justification. Well, it was actually the Lord that made it all happen. It was it was the Lord that did it. And so since God did it, then it's it's just. And so that that's kind of what happens here in this one as well, is that, you know, Jacob 
does come and, and rationalize everything by saying this is what the Lord wanted, right? This is how the Lord brought everything about. So, yeah. So now we have another stone pillar or stone heap. What's going on here, Ben, with this stone heap, this so heap of witness? This seems to be a new mode, at least in the text, analogous to the cutting an animal in two and dividing it apart and walking through the middle of it because you're making an oath. So here, Jacob is is introducing a new mode, a new ordinance that establishes an oath or a covenant between two peoples. And they pile up a bunch of stones and they say, these stones are witnesses of our covenant, our oath to each other. And it's kind of an interesting way of doing it. But it does then end up becoming, I believe, an altar for them to offer sacrifices on. Right. So then we have Jacob leaving, and he actually comes into contact with angels. And this just comes out of nowhere. Yeah, and then it goes nowhere. <laughs> and then it goes nowhere, right? Yeah, so verse, this is verse 1 of chapter 32 now, right? He just runs into these angels, we're told, and that's it, right? Yeah, it seems an odd thing to even mention. I mean, obviously, yes, later in this chapter, we get him having this wrestling match, but it's a very odd thing to just mention kind of out of nowhere, and then there doesn't seem to be any sort of consequential flow from it, you know? Yeah, so we'll go into this wrestling match. So one of the one of the things that I thought about at the beginning of this chapter where you have these angels, Again, this harks back to what happened to his father and his father's father, right? his grandfather, when they run into these men. Is it men? Is it angels? Is it God? Remember, there was some ambiguity in the text. Yeah. Well, here we have some ambiguity, too. So we have these angels showing up, and then seemingly there's nothing to do with the angels. And then he's wrestling with a man, the text tells us, ish in, in Hebrew. This is a, a human or humankind. He could be wrestling with, with humankind, meaning with his own humanity. And then it turns out he sees the face of God. And and so this, this wrestling match turns out to be with God. What's going on here? There are different ways that we can approach this, right? I think one, like I said, is to say Jacob is wrestling with himself, right? He's struggling within himself. I think psychologically we can read it that way. And what do we find ultimately at our core? Uh, our true self in the image of God, right? And so he sees the face of God. We're created in God's image. So of course he sees, and, and this is a new way of seeing himself. Then again, moving forward in the story, you and I, Ben, we talked about this pre-show. We, we wanted to see a transformation taking place here such that Jacob would come out on the other side of this. And this is right before he meets Esau. So he left from Esau, according to chapter 27, right? In the version of J. Uh, because he was threatened by uh, Esau. At least Esau said to himself that he would kill his brother after his father died. This is important, after his father died. Is when, when they meet, when, when Jacob meets Esau, you said his father is not dead, right? Yeah, not, there, not yet. I, I, there's no indication that Isaac's dead yet here. Yeah, and then we have the version of P in chapter 28. Gives us this other story as to why he goes to, to find a wife. And of course, he can go for whatever reason and find a wife. But it does seem to, to be that we have two different stories here. And so he has this encounter with the man, with God, with these angels. Again, when I say it that way, doesn't it sound like the other story? Yeah, there are going to be these kinds of returning types of themes constantly. 
What I see in this chapter 32 is we have at the end this physical struggle, but then we have other points in this chapter where there's other kinds of struggle, spiritual struggles, mental struggles, and then he has a physical struggle. So here at the beginning, he sees that Esau is coming. And in verse seven, it says, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds into two companies. Okay, so the idea is he's going to divide up into two groups so that if one gets attacked, the other one can get away and not everybody dies. And so this is another, you know, little tricky thing that Jacob's doing. And let's not forget, it's not just Esau, it's Esau plus 400 men, right? Yeah, 400. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, outnumbers him, way more powerful. So again, Jacob is acting out of fear here, but there is a step forward, right? So. What does he do? He he has a plan, but then the next thing is he does turn to God. So then he has this spiritual struggle that's outlined in this prayer. And this is, I think, the first drawn out prayer that pleads for deliverance that we find in the book of Genesis. And it's, you know, it's several verses long. And there's lots of good stuff in here in terms of what we're seeing going on with Jacob as he's he's struggling or striving with God, which he gets this name later. So here's the prayer. This is NRSV translation. You're looking at a different translation, right? I've got the KJV in front of me. Okay, so I'm going to read the NRSV. If you note any important differences, bring them up. Okay, so he says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, please, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I am afraid of him. He may come and kill us all, the mothers with the children. Yet you have said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted because of their number. So there is this little back and forth where he acknowledges God's ability, but then he expresses his fear, but then he says, yeah, I know God can deliver me, and then he expresses his fear, and then he says, oh, I know God. So there's this this back and forth in this prayer that we've noticed as a pattern of prayers of, of prophets in the scripture at other times. And so again, this is this spiritual struggle that he's going through. And then he concocts this enormous sum of gifts of animals to give to Esau. Previously, he said he would just give a tenth to the Lord. And I don't know what amount this constitutes in terms of the percentage of his flocks and everything, but he's certainly giving a huge amount to to Esau, I would say, at this point. It says, for he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face perhaps he will accept me. Mm. Okay, so if we take this verse, just kind of pull it out, it's like, what is this talking about? Oh, he's making a sacrifice to appease someone, and then he'll see his face, and he'll be accepted, right? So like, this is the mindset, the ancient mindset of sacrifice, you know, to appease God and receive acceptance, or at least that's what you think is supposed to happen. But you know, in the ancient mindset, you never quite know where you sit with God, right? So, like, you you never know where you're sitting with Esau. 
And so what's he going to do? He's going to he's going to give him the biggest present he can come up with because he doesn't know where he sits with Esau. A few things came together for me, Ben. So we could say that this prayer actually brings together the two ideas that he's wrestling with himself, with his humanity, and with God. Those two come together in this prayer, right? Yeah. And then we can also see, if we know what's happening next, that he does see the face of God in that his brother Esau runs to him and hugs him, yes. that he receives him with love. You know, when he doesn't expect it and when he doesn't, when he doesn't feel like he deserves it, and he tries to make the sacrifice to to get that, and yet he couldn't know, right? He couldn't know. And it really is surprising, uh, I think, to us all, not just to Jacob, but to the reader, that Esau shows up in this way. And so there's there's where we can see the face of God. The narrative gets flipped a little bit because, the, like you said, the expectation would be that Jacob receives Esau. But what happens here is that Esau receives Jacob, and Esau's the one that, at least... In the text, it looks like Esau's the one that sees Jacob, right? That accepts him as if it's God accepting his servant, as if it's Esau seeing God in Jacob. Whereas we would want to kind of turn it the other way in terms of Jacob's repentance. He's coming to see God and then see his fellow man. It actually turns out to be that Esau is the one that kind of is the, the bigger man in the situation, right? Yeah, and the text backs you up in 33.3 when it says that Jacob bows down to Esau seven times. Mm. And also in 33.5 when Isaac calls himself Esau's servant at Passim, right? This happens throughout and the rest of the chapter. And not only does Esau welcome him uh, with open arms, but the bribe or the offering or the sacrifice that is being made by Jacob is is unnecessary. You know, Esau says, I don't need any of that. And and I think, again, we can see God where last week we talked about how, was it last week or the week before, we talked about how we make up that we have to do X, Y, Z to connect with God, right? Whether it be making sacrifices, for example, in this case, and maybe in the other case too. And it turns out all we have to do is head in that direction, you know, in God's direction. And he comes running yes. and embraces us. And he says, I don't need any sacrifices. You don't have to do any of this stuff for me. I'm I'm ready to receive you with open arms. Exactly. Same story all over again. Yeah. Yeah. No, this does harken back to Abraham sacrificing Isaac because, you know, in in one of the analysis of this story, the angel comes saying, you don't have to do that. That's not necessary. You don't have to make these sacrifices in order to feel my acceptance and my love. So you have Abraham uh, wanting to be a high priest. Uh, acting out what he sees the other high priests around him doing in his context, he thinks, oh, to be a high priest, I have to sacrifice my son. That's how it's done. And God says, no, you don't. You don't have to do that. Yeah. So we get this, we, we skipped over it a bit because we wanted to get that story of Esau, but we get this physical wrestling match, which I want to come back to here a little bit, between Jacob and, it says, a man. But what's interesting is it says a man, but then there's so many other clues in the text that seem to indicate this is either some sort of divine being and then later implies that it's actually God. And so here's additional ambiguity, just like you brought up, Christopher, about who this person is. Just like when Abraham entertained the angels, it was really ambiguous, not just who it was, but how many there were. (laughs) 
So in this case, it, it starts off seeming obvious, but then gets more vague as it goes on. So he has this wrestling match with this apparent divine being in some way, and he's he's winning, right? Like he says he won't let him go. This is sort of hearkening back to Jacob's superhuman strength, right? Like he's he really got God pinned down strong. at this moment. Yeah, right? he's got God pinned down. And so God's saying, Uncle. Yeah, and there's uh, a little hint of a folkloristic theme here. What the commentary says, it marks the antiquity of this tradition. And that is that the the divine being that is existent here while the sun is down at night has to go away before the sun comes up. And it, it's almost like a Cinderella thing, you know, turns into a pumpkin type of thing. But that's the idea. The divine being had to vanish before sunrise. Otherwise, there were some consequences. The other thing is that names give you power over people. And so Jacob asks him his name, and he won't tell him his name because then that would give Jacob power over him. So again, there's these echoes of the folkloristic traditions about divine beings and and who God was. Again, it's not clear exactly the conceptualization of God at this point. Is he a man in human form? Is he not? It's kind of vague at this point in Genesis. Well, you know, Ben, I see him wrestling with two men, actually. Mm-hmm. I mentioned already that he's wrestling with himself, with his own humanity. And he's also wrestling, let's not forget, with his brother. Yes. His brother doesn't have to be present. He hasn't gotten to his brother yet, but he is wrestling with his brother. And then I've already said that he sees the face of God in his brother's face. Yes. I think that's great. If we were to even posit that he literally is wrestling with his brother and didn't know it at this point, that would be fascinating. But I I really like the meaning behind him wrestling with himself or metaphorically wrestling with his brother at this point because he doesn't know how to deal with this situation, right? He feels uh, an offense, a grudge, also fear. So he doesn't know how he can move forward with reconciliation and forgiveness in this situation, and he's, he's really struggling to figure that out. Yeah. So the couple other things that show up here, Ben, is that not only does Isaac call himself Esau's servant and he bows down to him, but also his wives and all of his children do the same. So it's interesting because here when they parted company, Jacob had stolen his birthright, so to speak. At the same time, let's not forget that Esau didn't really care about it, right? Right. I mean, he, you know, he he was willing to sell his birthright for some lentil soup, but then he did get tricked. Well, Jacob and and his mother tricked Jacob's father into giving him a blessing, and then Esau really wanted a blessing. I don't know if he cared about a birthright necessarily, but the text seems to indicate that he didn't. But he did care about a blessing. And and the blessing that he got, if we can call it that, is just this mirror opposite of what his brother got, which meant that he would actually serve his brother. And so here we have his brother actually showing up and, and, and saying he's his servant. So it's kind of interesting the way this ends up. And then about the offering that Jacob wanted to make, he still wants his brother to accept them. And he's saying that they come from God because, again, when he's saying they come from God, remember, that goes back to... How did he really get them? Did he yeah. <laughs> trick Laban or did God give them to him? And I, I'm saying he tricked Laban and says God gave them to him. And now when he wants his brother to take them, 
is he in some sense, then he's in on it in some way. Mm. You see what I mean? It, it really does. All that wealth stays with him and his family, with him and his brother in that way. That's that's something I saw that there may or may not be anything to it. But that's what I noticed. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, again, you know, I saw two different accounts previously. And from Jacob's perspective, the Lord just gave him these things, prospered his flocks. He didn't make any particular action except, you know, just being part of the covenant. And then the Lord just prospered the flocks. There's the previous account where he tries to manipulate the breeding. But this is more consistent with the second perspective where, you know, God just God just gave me these things. You know, they just multiply it all on their own. This is all God's doing. Right. And let's not forget that for an ancient Near Easterner, God is doing everything. Yeah, there's not necessarily a distinction, right? There's nothing that's happening that God isn't doing. There's that. And then, again, to raise good questions, hopefully we're raising good questions and not giving facile answers. And and, and I want to caution us away from a facile answer that I can see here, which is to say, well, okay, if I have to pick between God did it or Jacob did it, and he's doing it by this method that we know scientifically does not actually do anything, right? (laughs) Then it must have been God. Whereas another way to read it, to me, that's a facile answer. Another way to read it is, this is just what happened, regardless of what he did. So, you know, he could have his superstitions and do the thing, and maybe sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And who knows what they tell themselves when it doesn't work. But when it does work, hey, it works because this is what works, right? And and that's obvious because, look, it just worked. I would say what happened happened, and then it's explained by, well, that's because I did this, and or, again, what's the difference, right? God made it happen. The crucial question seems to be what Jacob's intention was. You know, was was his intention, you know, like you said before, to bless himself, or was his intention that, you know, he just lived within the covenant and the blessings come from God? And again, there's not always necessarily a distinction there, so... Right. Well, for me, again, the the answer is he seems to want to bless himself and he seems to be intending at least, right? As you've pointed out, the question, the real crux of the matter is what's his intention? And it seems that his intention is to trick Laban and to come out on top. With that, we end with Jacob building an altar just like uh, his father uh, before him and his father's father too, right? Yeah, and I think the idea here is that Jacob is continually entering this relationship with God, and that's why he gets the new name Israel. You know, he who strives with God or struggles with God, or one of the translations I saw was perseveres with God, which really does kind of match this discussion we've had about, you know, staying in the conversation with God, you know, regardless of the stumblings that that happen or the the mistakes that you make or the shortcomings that you have, keep coming back, keep repenting, keep staying on the path to God, or, you know, keep coming back to him and striving towards him. That is the meaning of this name Israel, is this person that keeps striving, keeps wanting to come back to God, to renew his relationship with him, to understand who he is better And to live out that covenant and even bless others. And all of this, despite his humanity, all of this, despite his struggles, whether to forgive or whether not to come out on top. Right. I want to go back, though. There's something I glossed over, and that is in verse 25 of chapter 32. So 32, 25. 
this is when Jacob has God pinned down. And when he saw, and this is when God saw, that he prevailed not against him, meaning Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then, of course, we're told because of Jacob's thigh being out of joint, the the Jews are therefore not going to eat out of a certain part. I don't remember the exact details. But again, one of these explanations for why we don't do the things we don't do, it goes back to the story of Jacob, right? It's that kind of thing. But the thing that I notice here is, well, I'm going to say is happening here that the text doesn't say, but it looks to me a lot like there's a covenant happening here, like when Abraham tells his servant to put his hand under his thigh and make this covenant with him. Here you have God putting his hand under Jacob's thigh, so to speak. That's one way I thought it could be read. And it's in a moment of struggling, right, where he's struggling with his own will and God's making this covenant with him despite his own struggles or inner battles, so to speak. Yeah. Well, Ben, that's all I have. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, You know, just staying along with that, you read the KJV. I'm going to read the NRSV translation on that because it does make it a little more animated. It says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So it, it, it makes it a little more of a context sport in this in this translation. Not just touched him, right? So it's interesting because that makes sense, right? That his thigh would become out of joint by force, right? Whereas yeah. in the KJV, it reads as if it were already out of joint. At least that's how I read it. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Well, okay, there we have a comma. So And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, Comma, he touched the hollow of his thigh, semicolon, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint, comma, as he wrestled with him. The NRSV is much more active in what's going <laughs> yeah. on. I'd, Cause and effect. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't actually uh, compare with the NRSV on this verse. I'd probably want to look at an interlinear translation, look at the Hebrew. But that's interesting. Thanks for pointing that out. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Ben? No, I don't think so. Those are the main points here, and I think the meat of it just really for me revolves around this moment of Jacob struggling and and we don't really see you know like you said we we kind of wanted to see this transformation of him you know he's he's become a, a more virtuous person or better suited to to fulfill the covenant or or something like that and it's it's not completely obvious that that's the case right now even though we've seen all of this happen and you know Maybe there is something there for us to look at ourselves and say, you know, we may have had these different experiences with God and ask ourselves, has this really changed me like I might have expected that it should have? And why or why not? Yeah, there's something else I wanted to add, Ben. And that is, you know, from the Islamic tradition, we have this word that that is thought of as holy war, the word jihad. Mm. Mm-hmm. which actually, you know, it's a struggle, right? The, the, the word translates struggle. And so we're dealing struggle. here with a struggle, yeah. right? And so the person who wants to be close to God struggles in this same way that's being described here in this text that we're reading, and it's called a jihad. And as a matter of fact, there's a, a saying from the Prophet Muhammad that as he was coming back from battle with his companions, because they did do battle and they did call that jihad. But the Prophet Muhammad taught that that was the lesser jihad and that they were returning from that lesser jihad from battle to the greater jihad which is the one that we fight 
to use David O. McKay's words, in the silent chambers of our souls. Right. And that's what we see happening here with Jacob, is that he's he's wrestling with God in the silent chambers of his soul. So the quote from David O. McKay reads, the greatest battles of life are fought out daily in the silent chambers of the soul. Thank you to our editors, Kyle Swingle and Tom Bogle, and to Lindsay Olin. Thank you, Shiloh, for producing the podcast. And thank you, Ben. Thank you, Christopher. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson.